the church teaches that, it, that there is a twofold reality to the human person. The first reality is that each person has intrinsic dignity. We are made in the image and likeness of God. No matter how insignificant or unpopular we are, God loves us because he made us and he has redeemed us. No matter how little we seem to matter in this world, we matter infinitely in God's world, which is heaven. As St. John said, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. The second reality of the human person is that man is a social animal. That phrase comes from Aristotle. But the church adopted the expression into Christianity because it speaks to the truth revealed by scripture as well as by reason. To say that man is a social animal means that human beings exist for relationships. We can only find happiness through love in communion with others, which is why the Bible teaches us to care for our neighbor. So we hold these two truths in great tension. One, man has a unique dignity that comes from God, but yet man is a social animal. Now, Aristotle was a pagan. He didn't believe in a personal God. He didn't understand the first half of the equation, that each individual has incomparable dignity. To Aristotle, a person's dignity was given to him or her by society. A person's dignity was measured by the role or importance they had in their city-state, by how good a citizen they were. All of the totalitarian governments in history, whether that's communism or fascism or Nazism, likewise fail on this central point. In these systems, a person's dignity is dictated by how they serve the state, because the state takes the place of God. Even unchecked capitalism can be like this in a certain regard. A person's social value tends to be measured by their ability to make money. But because man is a social animal, it's inevitable, even in a rightly ordered society, that there are going to be some who are more honored or rewarded. The church realizes, realizes that it would be neither practical nor just for society to try to level all differences and distinctions. Some people earn more money or receive more recognition because they have certain talents or gifts, or maybe they simply work hard, or perhaps they just have the right friends and family. Kept within reasonable bounds, society requires distinctions in wealth and honor in order to facilitate progress and to give people incentives and the motivations to cooperate. Even the differences in opportunities or resources that arise from one's family of origin or from inherited wealth, what we might call accidents of birth, are good insofar as they reinforce the value of the family as the basic cell of society. Further, it's simply the case that attempting to suppress all differences leads to many more problems than it solves. We've seen this in the communist countries that have tried it. So in and of itself, the church teaches that certain types of inequality are not wrong, as long as the differences that society allows to exist do not eclipse the idea that all persons, no matter what, have an intrinsic dignity. Another way to think about it is this. Our faith teaches us that those who receive good things in this life should recognize that they have, they have these benefits 
only because of the grace of God. While it's perfectly fine for them who are blessed with wealth or other things to enjoy these blessings to a reasonable degree, they should take care that such things do not become ends in themselves. Rather, they are things that God gives us in order that we might live more fully for others. But what about the Catholic Church herself? How do these principles apply to her? Well, on the one hand, the church operates by a different set of standards than the rest of the world. She has a different scale of values than secular society. For over 2,000 years, at her best, the church has been a place of refuge for those who are rejected and scorned by society, the sick, the orphan, the poor, saint and sinner alike. Take the example of St. Lawrence. He was a deacon around 250 AD in Rome when the church was under intense persecution. At one point, the governor of Rome decided to confiscate the church's wealth. So he arrested St. Lawrence because in those days, deacons were responsible for safeguarding the church's money and valuables. The governor said to Lawrence, take me to the church's diamonds. St. Lawrence led him to a home where consecrated women, what we would today call nuns, cared for the sick and the dying. He said, see how they sparkle. Angry, the governor said to Lawrence, I know that the church has many golden chalices. So Lawrence took him to an orphanage for abandoned children that was run by the church. He said here, each one is more pure gold than the next. Enraged, the governor demanded the church's money. So Lawrence led him to a field outside of Rome where the poorest peasants labored all day in the hot sun. And he said, all these bear the face of Christ the King just as any coin bears the face of the emperor. And with that, the governor took St. Lawrence and burned him alive, giving the church one more saint and another in a long list of martyrs. Because Lawrence understood that the poor and the outcast and not any material possession were the true treasures of the church. But even in the church, don't we have differences and distinctions? Doesn't something of the secular world slip in? Some of the concern with honors and titles and money? Well, to a degree, yes. That's just the way things work in an imperfect world. The church is not so far removed from the world that she can ignore the reality that money and organization is necessary for some things. Without money and property and structures of authority, the church could not carry on her sacred mission. Differences in power and outward status that are perhaps only imperfect replications of actual differences in Christian virtue will always exist within the church, this side of heaven. Because the church is made up of ordinary men and women, not angels. But the church recognizes that although this is a necessary practical reality in this life, it is not the reality that truly animates her. One of my favorite places to go to pray is the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception right here in D.C. One thing has always fascinated me there. Along the sides of the upper church are the statutes of many well-known saints, the great popes and bishops, founders of religious orders, famous missionaries and theologians, Christian kings and rulers. But one place is extra special, at the place of highest honor in the North Apse. 
Just below the mosaic of Christ in majesty and the depictions of the angelic hosts governing the universe. There you will find the statutes of six very obscure saints. Each of these saints is notable for having lived a life in which they were misunderstood and marginalized. Not just by the larger society, which is probably the experience of all the saints, but even by the church of their time. Saints like Gemma Galgani or the Curie of Ars, St. John Marie Vianney. In some cases, their holiness was not known until after they had died. Yet the church now celebrates them, reminding us that saints like these might be just the hint of what we are to discover in the next life. I have two dreams about heaven. One is that, that, is that I get there in the first place and I can look upon the face of God and the many saints that we all know. But the other is that when I get to heaven, I can look around and see all the saints I might have known in my life whose true holiness I never suspected. People whose heroic spiritual struggles I never imagined. All of their good works were hidden from my sight. But then I will see them and I will know them for who they truly are. For today's gospel expresses the greatest, most paradoxical truth of our faith, that like Christ, the further down the saints are pushed in this life, the higher they rise in the kingdom of heaven. Because to suffer for others and on account of others is to be one with Christ. Because to seek after the good of others, even when they don't reciprocate, is to share the heart of God. To be humbled is to be exalted, just like Christ on the cross. Because love is the manifestation of faith, and the fruit of love is humility and patient suffering. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. This is our faith. This is the faith of the saints. It started on Calvary and stretches over 2,000 years of history. We know that when we suffer for Christ, rejoice and be glad, for our reward will be great in heaven. The Beatitudes will always be imperfectly lived in this pilgrim church on earth, but they are made true in the communion of saints in heaven, which is the church in glory. As we celebrate the solemnity of all saints here in our parish, our challenge is to deeply examine not just what we do, but the very spirit in which we do it we might ask ourselves some questions. Do I get to church early in order to pray? Or do I get here so that I can get a seat up front where everyone can see that I'm here? Do I volunteer for this or that church ministry or committee because it's how I feel God is truly calling me to serve others? Or because business contacts or friends that I want to make are there? Do I donate my money where I really feel it is needed? Or do I choose something that will get my name on a donor plaque or invited to a dinner? Do I rush off to brunch with my family and friends after Mass? Or do I see if there's anyone who looks like they are lonely and could use a hello, or someone who might need a ride home? Do I attend a prayer group or a Bible study because all of my friends are in it? Or do I volunteer to go to a hospital or nursing home and pray with someone who might really need my visit? Above all, do I long to tirelessly serve God and the least among us as the saints did? Or do I long to be successful, popular, and comfortable in this life? The saints made their choice. 
What will we choose? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.